keep, do keep your Bibles open there at Genesis 15. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, one of you have ever heard the expression, there but for the grace of God go I. You ever heard that one? There but for the grace of God go I. These famous words come from a real person, actually, in history. He was a pastor in a church of England in the 16th century. He was called John Bradford. He was a popular preacher and a respected author. But when Queen Mary Tudor came to power, the political will turned against John Bradford, and he was arrested and taken to the Tower of London, not all that far from here. And he must have known that he would never see freedom again. In January 1555... Bradford was tried and condemned to death for his Protestant views. He had five months left to live. He was in the Tower of London for that five months. And on the 1st of July, he was brought to Newgate Prison to be burned alive at the stake. The execution was scheduled for four in the morning, but was delayed because of a large crowd who gathered to watch. He was chained to the stake with a young man called John Leaf. Can you imagine the fear as they piled the wood around? Now, before the fire was lit, Bradford spoke to the crowd. He begged forgiveness of anyone that he had wronged. And he offered forgiveness to anyone who had wronged him. And then he turned to the young man, John Leaf, and he said, Be of good cheer, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. John Bradford was burned to death that day. He was 45 years old. Now, he could have doubted that God keeps his promises, couldn't he? Promise to always be with you, to protect you. He could have lost hope that God would be true to his word. As he looked at the wood piled around for burning, he must have felt fear. He wasn't a superhuman. Can you imagine the terror of that scene? And yet he was able to say to comfort someone else and say, we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. He was able to look beyond the present circumstances, which were dreadful, to a glorious future that night. In other words, John Bradford was able to have strong faith. Now in this chapter, which Katie just read for us, we see Abraham afraid. And we see how he comes to be stronger in faith. So we're going today on a journey from fear to faith. I've got three points. Firstly, the presence of fear. Secondly, the promise of God. And thirdly, the premise of faith. Yes, premise. Presence of fear, promise of God, the premise of faith. And as you look in your your Bible to verse 1, you immediately get the clue that Abraham was afraid when we see God's first words to him in verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abraham. And we see the reason for Abraham's fear in in some of his questions, don't we? Look at verse 2. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, verse 3, You, Lord, have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now what's going on here? In that culture, if you were childless, obviously you've got your estate and whatever you've, your property and your possessions and so on, you've got to pass it on to someone. So a childless couple could nominate a trusted, much-loved servant in their household and actually say, it's all going to come to you. And evidently, Abraham, 
Abraham, at this point in his will and testament, has said, uh, this servant is going to inherit from me. He, he's at this point probably lost his confidence that God will provide an heir, so he's come up with plan B. Uh, this lovely guy, Eliezer of Damascus. Now, what is going on here? Remember the story so far, if you've been with us on this journey. Abram and Sarai, his wife, have heard God speak to them in chapter 11 and 12. They were living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. They left everything because of God's call. They left everything that their culture held dear, their family, their kinship group, their country, the the place that they belonged, his father's household, which implies all the inheritance that goes with that. They've left it all and and got got up and gone and walked away from it, and they've travelled west to a new country, a land promised by God himself. They didn't really know much about it. When they got to the land, it, they discovered that it's already occupied by a whole group of people called the Canaanites. But God assured them again, I will give it to you. So they continue in faith, waiting for God to come through. But they didn't know when. And God had also promised that they would have children so that their descendants would become a great nation, but they weren't able to have children biologically. Sarai has always had fertility issues. Now this is a very sensitive subject, a very private subject in any culture. The NHS website suggests that in the UK, something like one in seven couples may have difficulty conceiving. So it's quite a common struggle. Painful, painful private subject. But in their culture, it's actually worse because it means Abraham has no name anymore. He's got no name going forward in the future. He has no future. There's no one to carry on the family line. It's the end of the line. But God had made a promise. And the consequences of that promise go much, much further than this family's private pain. Because according to the book of Genesis, which we're studying, this couple is how God is going to resolve all the brokenness and the darkness and the sickness of this world through this man and his family. God is going to reverse the curses of the first 11 chapters of Genesis somehow through this person and his descendants. So do you see now how much is at stake from the Bible's point of view, can God be trusted to come through for us on his promises? Or will he actually forget about it or change his mind or, and abandon his creation and, and leave us to our own devices? Because in spite of God's promises and words, they are still childless at this point. And Abraham knows, as he looks at his aging body and his wife's body, well past childbearing, that it looks hopeless to any normal by any normal measure it measure this looks absolutely hopeless it really does and that's I think he's come up with plan b the servant and we have to imagine here an elderly couple feeling very frail and looking fragile at this moment and perhaps feeling foolish We've left, left it all. What, what's happening, Lord? And definitely feeling afraid. 
Hence God's words, do not be afraid, Abraham. How long have they been on the road by this point? The text doesn't say, but it must have been a matter of years. Years of waiting for this miracle baby. It's not come. And there's still no child. And they are still basically nomads living in the land, traveling from place to place, no fixed abode. The early thrill, the adrenaline, the excitement has now faded. And now they feel fear. Where is God now? What will you give me for I continue childless? Maybe you know something of what that feels like. You heard God's words too. You discovered the Christian faith for yourself. It was rich and fascinating and exciting. You discovered the Christian church. And at its best, the church is a unique, loving, warm, authentic community. The kind of home we always wanted at its best. And above all, you discovered Jesus. You discovered his teaching, his grace, his power, his love, his cross, his resurrection, his presence in your life through the Holy Spirit. You discovered all of that, but now things feel a bit different. Because once the early excitement and warmth of all those discoveries has faded, perhaps now you feel afraid. Is it all really true? You look at the circumstances of your life and you're afraid. What makes us fear? For some it's the effects of aging or serious health problems physical health, mental health. For some, it's fertility issues, a long, private, painful struggle for many. For some, it's financial crisis. Debt can create doubt. For some, it's relationship breakdown or betrayal. For some, it's deep disappointment. I just did not expect it to turn out like this. You look at the circumstances of your life and you fear. And if you're not sure, by the way, whether you really fear, remember that anxiety is basically fear. If you're anxious, it's it's fear. And that is exactly what Abraham did. He feared. He feared because in this chapter we see the, the power of fear. Abraham was afraid. And yet we see how he came to move from there to faith. Now, you know what? The first readers of this book of Genesis had reasons to be afraid too. When they looked around, they had reason to doubt whether God would keep his word because the first people who read this book were the Israelites and God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and brought them through signs and wonders and the Red Sea had parted and they'd walked through on dry land and they were on their way to the promised land. Oh, glory. It was glorious. They sang Miriam and the women sang a song by the sea about how God had rescued them. But now they were migrants in the wilderness. And it felt like it had been a very long time. And some of them even complained because they missed the food back in Egypt. They had scarce supplies and they were vulnerable to attack. They were on their way to fight enemies who far outnumbered them and were superior in firepower. This chapter was written for them. First of all, 
But this chapter was written for you too, because many of us are in a similar position. When we look at our lives, when we look at our circumstances, we have reason to doubt God's word. Is God really in control here? And if he is, does he really care for me? Is he going to look after me in this current situation? Financial, relational, professional, emotional, physical. What about this messed up world? You look around, you read the news. Goodness me, this week I've decided I'm going to read the news less. It's so depressing. Why is there so much suffering? Will God make everything right? Why is he taking so long to sort the world out? Is he really loving and just? Is he really there? Could it be that there's no God after all and we're just fooling ourselves? You may well have reason to doubt. Maybe you are doubting right now. And you know what? That's okay, Christian friend. It's okay to doubt. Just don't sit with it on your own and stay in that. Share it with us. And doubt always has, often has roots in fear. We doubt because we're afraid that there isn't a God or that he's not as good as he says he is. And that is the root of our doubts. And then if that is in any way your position, this chapter was written for you. It was written so that we would not focus on the presence of fear, but focus on the promise of God and how he delivers. Abraham feared, but God shows us, this chapter shows us that God responds to his fear very kindly and very graciously. He doesn't just go, stop doubting, bad Christian. It's a scolding, you know. No, God speaks to him. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. He speaks again. Words of reassurance, great and precious promises. So we've thought about the presence of fear. Now we're thinking about, secondly, the promise of God. God reveals himself in these words as a shield, as a creator, and as the one who makes covenant with his people. Firstly, a shield. I am your shield, your very great reward. A shield is a form of protection that's right next to you, isn't it? It's right there. It's really close. It's not remote. It's up close and personal. And a shield protects you by taking the hits on your behalf. You think about the ancient world or even the medieval world and the person has a shield and the shield takes an absolute battering, doesn't it? People hitting it with swords and spears and whatever else they do. And the shield gets battered. It takes it on your behalf. But you're okay. And God is saying, Abraham, you are scared. Yes, but for anyone to get to you, they will have to come through me. But Abraham is still afraid, you know. And his fear prompts him to do something unusual. He, he actually questions God. He speaks back. I think this is the first time he has spoken to God so far in the book. And he raises questions in verses 2 and 3. Listen to what he says. And just think how audacious this is. Sovereign Lord, verse 2. What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Look at this. God does not, um, in his power and, and awesomeness, silence this man. But he wants to hear from him. We thought about this for a few weeks in the summer, the Psalms. Psalms are poetry in the middle of the Bible given to us to know how we can express our heart to God. Because here we see that God welcomes questions. 
He welcomes our, our heart's cry. Now this is still reverent. This isn't shouting and swearing at God. But it is deep questioning. Lord, what can you give me? This is the situation. I can't see a way out of it. What on earth is going on? And so God then does not scold him for asking questions. He gives him a bigger vision. A breathtaking one. He says, step outside, Abram, and look at the stars. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. There it is again. You, Abram, will have your own biological son, and he will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Abram, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. A few years ago, we took our children for a half-term break in Birmingham, sunny Birmingham. And thanks to the kindness of my brother and his wife, we enjoyed a day at a place called Think Tank, which is in the Birmingham Museum of Science and Industry. And it was just exceptional. And the highlight of the day for me was a 10-minute film in this Think Tank in a special auditorium, which was a a 360-degree digital planetarium. So you're sitting in a dome on this chair that as you, the chair leans right back. So you're actually kind of lying there in this dome and you're completely surrounded by the stars, by this high, high quality film of the stars. It was amazing. How much do we really know about the stars? I think we've got a picture coming up if Paul's there. there there's a picture. This is um, at NASA, the American Space Agency. They have this thing called the picture of the day. It's amazing. Actual photos. This isn't a piece of artwork. This is an actual photograph of some stars. And this is what a professional astronomer wrote about it. How massive can a normal star be? That's what an astronomer would sound like, isn't it? (laughs) Estimates made... No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Estimates made from distance, brightness, and standard solar models have given one star in the open cluster Pismis 24. Who names these things? Pismis 24. You could have called it Angela or something. Anyway, Pismis 24. This star has over 200 times the mass of the sun. Can you imagine? You know how big the sun is? 200 times the size of the sun. Nearly Nearly making it the record holder. This star is the brightest object located just above the gas front in the image. So you've got this gas down at the bottom and then you see that really bright object that is a star that is 200 times bigger but they got the Hubble space telescope this huge telescope and they looked at it and they found that Pismis 24 derives its brilliant luminosity not from a single star but from a cluster of at least three component stars would still remain nearly 100 solar masses making them among the more massive stars on record God takes Abraham outside and he says Look at the stars. Now, Abram did not have the benefit of the Hubble telescope. All he had was the naked eye. But he also didn't have the South London urban glow and the M25 in the background. So he could actually see a lot more stars than you and I. You can see a lot of stars with the naked eye, actually, and you would have trouble counting them. You ever tried? 
You kind of lose your place after a bit. And God says to him in verse 5, count them if indeed you can. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. Your offspring is going to be more numerous than those stars in the sky. Now, what is the Lord God getting at here with this vision? I think it's partly about maths. There's going to be a lot, but I think there's more going on than just maths. It's about his power as a creator, isn't it? The one who spoke and the sun, moon and stars came into being by his voice. The reasoning then is if God can make all of that, then he can give Abraham a very big family somehow. And this may be the answer, friends, to some of your doubts and fears. Can God really come through? Can God actually raise the dead? Can God make a new creation where there is no more sorrow, sickness, and sin? Can he do it? Abraham believes God. And verse 6 is actually one of the most theologically important verses in the entire Bible. If you've got your own Bible, you could, you could do well with highlighting it. Look at Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. He just believed trusted in him at that moment that this is true and God credits him that he is righteous New Testament writers pick up on this a lot it's very important Galatians chapter 3 Romans chapter 4 the book of James Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness in other words Abram here is considered righteous in God's sight just for believing Not because he's especially good. Not because he's been perfectly obedient. But just for believing. And this righteousness means he's in a good standing. He's in a right relationship with God. Not based on any of his efforts, good works. It's not even based on being in a covenant with God because that's coming next. No, you can be counted as righteous in the sight of God simply by trusting him. Now, this was absolutely unique in the religions of the ancient world, and it's absolutely unique in the religions of today. You know what religion basically says? Most religion basically says, do. Do this, 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 and this, and don't do that, 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 and that. And if you keep the rules as much as you can, then you might have a chance of, of being forgiven and getting to heaven. I used to have a Muslim shopkeeper around the corner from where we lived in Manchester, Ali, lovely guy, just a lovely guy. Occasionally we'd have theological talks with him. He was interested in talking, as Muslims are. They're not embarrassed about religion. They think you are embarrassed about it if you don't say anything. So we'd talk about it. I said to him one time, Ali, are you confident that you're going to go to heaven? He said, I think so. I think so. I think God will, you know, I think I'm just about on the right. But it's all about, have I done these things and have I not done these things the, the faith of the Bible is not do but done it's been done for you. you you don't do it to accomplish God's favor and acceptance and love God gives it to you as a done deal all you do is accept that's what this table is all about by the way you receive 
the bread and the wine. It shows you that you're not bringing anything to the table except your sin, and it's all been done for you. All you have to do is believe, which means fully trust. Now, although Abraham is now assured about the descendants, he's still doubting about the land, and that's probably because he reckons that his son will be given to him in his lifetime, but the land promise will come after his death. So he says, verse 8, he comes back again. Look, look at verse 8. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? And God then does the most remarkable thing he's done yet. He comes down to Abram's level. He's just shown him the stars, right? Now he comes down to earth. And God comes in person to make a covenant with Abram. Have a look at verse 9. The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, a lot of people here are probably wondering, from this point on in the passage, what the heck is going on? You've got to get these animals, and then you've got to cut them in half, and then spread the pieces out opposite each other, but not cut the birds in half, and then... When these kind of, you know, vultures and birds of prey come down, it sweeps them away because these things have got to be there. And then it says, uh, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. What is going on here? The answer is this is a covenant ceremony. God is making a, a covenant with Abraham. We've thought a little bit about covenants here recently, but let me just say again, a covenant is a legally binding contract. It's a legally binding uh, relationship which is more formal than a merely emotional commitment, but it's also more intimate than a merely legal commitment. So if you, any of you here own property, you've probably got the deeds for your house. Houses, if you look at the deeds, the legal language, you'll talk about covenants. But that's very formal. It's merely formal. But marriage is a more intimate kind of covenant. You make a, you make a commitment to one another that is binding and will last as long as you both shall live. That's the best picture of a covenant. And the way that God relates to people in the Bible is through covenants. He makes an ag- a deal, a promise, a binding commitment to be their God, and they will be his people. And that is also what this table is about today. God here, the great creator, the shield, also says, I'm here for you and I will always be here for you. Now, when we look at the cultures of the ancient world, in the Near East of that time, this was kind of standard practice, actually. All this business of getting the, the animals and cutting them in half and uh, going th- somebody walks through the middle and making promises, this is not some weird thing that the Bible came up with. Everybody did this at this sort of time, around about the second millennium BC. This is very common practice. God is making a covenant with Abram. And here he makes a land grant. He's going to promise land to him. And the animals are cut as a symbolic gesture that's very gruesome. Here is Professor Jeffrey Niehaus, wonderful uh, scholar who taught me a few years ago. And Jeff Niehaus says this, In these treaties, animals were cut up. And one of the king, the junior king, was required to walk between the parts of the animals. And the symbolism is this. If I break the covenant, may the same fate befall me. So if I break the terms of the covenant I'm making with you, Lord, may I also be cut apart. The Assyrians took this literally. 
One king, Ashurbanipal, said of a rebellious vassal king, in Nineveh, they threw Dunanu on a skinning table and slaughtered him like a lamb. Oh, dear. <laughs> rough times back in the ancient Near East. God also took this uh, ritual literally. Here is General, Jeremiah 34. God says this, The men who violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So it's very serious to walk between the parts of those animals, isn't it? You're not doing it with your fingers crossed. You're going to keep the covenant. But the promise is, is he will get the land. You know, he'll be under this great king if he keeps the terms. So it's all about keeping the terms. So God here has come down to show him he's the great king. And he's making a binding arrangement with Abraham in this form of a treaty. But there is a problem, isn't there? How does that guarantee Abraham anything? Because if it depends on Abraham's obedience and on the obedience of his descendants... It looks decidedly flaky, doesn't it? We might say that the project is doomed from the start. How, is it, how are humanity going to remain faithful to God? And that's when the most incredible thing happens, completely unique in the ancient world. Verses 17 and 18. God walks through the pieces. When the sun had set... And darkness had fallen. A smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Why a smoking brazier and a blazing torch? Whenever God appears in the Bible, a manifestation of his presence, it is so powerful and overwhelming that it's he comes in smoke and fire top of Mount Sinai the ground shook fire smoke don't go near the mountain so this is a first hint of that reality God coming in person in the, in the fire and the smoke but the thing is Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces He's asleep. God goes through on his own. And the logic of that is that God takes the curse upon himself if Abraham breaks the deal. That's the logic. That's what's going on in this passage. Now that is very strange indeed. It's a self-curse. It's like signing a contract in your own blood. What is going on? A Jewish scholar, a very, very fine Jewish scholar, Nahum Sana, asks a, a, a searching question. He says, it's generally believed that when the contracting parties passed between the pieces, they accepted the obligations and they invoked upon him, themselves the fate of the animals if the terms of the pact were violated. But how could this apply to God? The smoke and the flame are frequent symbols of the divine presence in the Bible. And it's, not, it's only these that pass between the pieces. Abraham didn't participate. Only God binds himself to a solemn obligation. 
That's his promise. Abraham, I'm here for you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'll give you the land. I'll give you the son. And by the way, if you break the terms of this, I'm going to take it upon myself. How does that work? The answer is our third and final point, which is the premise of faith. A premise is a fundamental statement or a fundamental truth that you build the rest of the argument on. It's the foundation. How could God take the curse upon himself to make sure that the covenant will be kept? Nobody knew until Jesus. But in Jesus Christ, we see how God is willing to take the curse upon himself for our disobedience to make sure we keep the covenant. At the cross, another deep darkness came and Jesus was torn apart. And he took the curse of sin and disobedience upon himself. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That's how God kept his side of the bargain and our side of the bargain through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. You know, God did give that land to Abraham's descendants when the 400 years had passed in time. And God did go with them, represented by a, a cloud, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, fire and cloud again. God went with them. He did exactly what he said he would, but the people were unfaithful. They broke their side of the covenant. Again and again, they went after other gods. They were adulterous. They copied the vile practices of the Canaanites. They adopted their gods. They incurred the curse. They should have been rejected. But at the cross, God was torn apart. Jesus cried out in his, in his darkest moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What must Jesus Christ have heard in his spirit to make him say that? He must have heard something like this, depart from me. Accursed one. So for us, the cross becomes the premise of faith on which we build our lives. A premise is a foundation. You base things on the premise. And because of the cross, we know that God loves us. We know. He loved us so much that he did not shrink back from dying for us. It is the ultimate sacrifice. And because of the cross, we know that God is just. He's not blind to evil in this world. He doesn't wink. There's no corruption. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He's not distant and uncaring. He's totally involved and he deals with evil. But he deal, deals with it by punishing Jesus, the righteous one on behalf of the wicked. He triumphs over evil at the cross. And because of the cross, we know that God will do anything necessary to bring lost people to himself. Anything. He will do whatever it costs. He will pay whatever it costs to bring you to himself. And if he has done that for you, friends, will he take care of the lesser things? Will he take care of the lesser things? So reason it out on this premise. Will God look after you and see you through your current circumstances, whatever they are? I'm not making light of them. 
Because of the cross, you can know that God is your shield. Jesus took the wounds that were due to you in his own body. Because of the cross, you can know that God is your reward. Jesus guarantees your very great reward. He says to the thief, today, you will be with me in paradise. Not simply as a subject, but as an heir adopted into God's family. If Jesus Christ did that for you, will he not do for you also all the things that are needed to get you through this journey? Do not fear, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Bring your fears today, bring your anxiety to the Lord's table. And as we feast together on this bread and wine, commit your way to him once again. Let's pray. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. Amen.